I want you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Matthew. I want you to look at Matthew chapter 23. Verse 37, Jesus said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee, how often would I gather thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. We're told that here Jesus, when he reached this point in his conversation with the religious leaders, because Matthew 23 is dealing with the woes upon the Pharisees, scribes, and lawyers. Jesus began to weep. He was crying. He was weeping. He realized that there he was looking over Jerusalem and he looked over the, that, that chosen city that he had chosen so long ago that he knew that now the end had come. He knew it was over. What a solemn declaration that Jesus gave. That he was actually talking to the religious leaders of his day and he was looking upon the city Jerusalem, his city, the city of David, it's called there in the Old Testament. And Jesus, the foundation of the Jewish economy, the one, the eternal one, looked upon that city and said, it's over. It's finished. Your house is left unto you desolate. You've come to an end. What happened? What went wrong? This was God's chosen people. It was the church of God on the earth. It was, in the, uh, in the words of the Old Testament, the apple of God's eye. Right? It was. No question about it. Notice with me in verse 29. Jesus said, Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, because ye build the tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchres of the righteous, and say, If we had been in the days of our fathers, we would have not been partakers of them in the blood of the prophets. <laughs> oh, that's what hit my mind. I thought, boy, here's this guy thinking the same thing. What he spoke to me today. Here they were the religious leaders of the day. There they were building the sepulchers and the tombs of the prophets. Say, keep polishing. They were building them up. And they said, isn't that nice? And they were thinking within themselves and they were saying, why, had we lived in the days of our fathers, why, we would have never been partakers of the blood of the prophets that our fathers killed. Why, we wouldn't have done that. Why, we love the prophets. Why, we love them. Can't you see? I build monuments to them. Verse 31, Jesus said, Wherefore ye be witnesses unto yourselves that ye are the children of them that killed the prophets. Now why did Jesus tell them that? How come Jesus said you're a witness against yourself? You know why? 
Listen, here they were garnishing the sepulchers of the prophets and tombs and building them up and saying within themselves, why, we would have never done what our fathers did. We would have never persecuted and, 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 and killed the prophets. But Jesus then turns it around and says, you are a witness against yourself. You are the children of them that killed the prophets. You know why Jesus said that? Because Jesus could read their hearts. And you know what? All along they were planning to kill the greatest prophet of all, Jesus Christ himself. And that's why Jesus said you're a witness against yourself because you, your own heart testifies you are the children of them that killed the prophets because you planned to kill me. Goes up here in verse 32. Fill ye up then the measure of your fathers, ye serpents, ye generation of vipers. How can you escape the damnation of hell? Verse 34, he goes, Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and, and some of them shall ye kill and crucify. Now right there, Jesus prophesied of the type of death uh, that he would die. Jesus just prophesied that he actually said that you're going to actually crucify me. Goes on to say, Some of them shall ye scourge in your synagogues. You see, we have more to fear from within than we do from without. Our worst enemy shall be days of our own household. So don't be surprised. Don't be shocked. If a brother or sister in Christ persecutes you, or if one of your own family persecutes you, Jesus himself said it would take place. Goes on to say that you would scourge them in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city. Why? There they are fleeing from one city to, to, to their find shelter, maybe in someone's home. But you think that would rest? No, no. Jesus said they'll chase you out of that city. And you have to go to another home and another place and another place. There's th verse 35, he says, That upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, the son, uh, the son of Barachias, whom ye slew between the temple and the altar. Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. What was happening to the Jewish nation? What were they doing? What was going on? Listen, God sent them prophet after prophet, time and time again. Wise men and scribes there to, to show them the way and, and to help them to come out of that apostasy and error and, and, and sin that they were in. To lead them to the promised land. But time after time, they refused to listen. They refused to listen. But all the while, all the while, they were pretending... And acting as though they were the righteous ones. That they were the chosen of Israel. That they were of the children of God. Thinking themselves to be God's people. When in reality they were nothing more than instruments of Satan. To destroy the true church. I tell you brothers and sisters. History is being repeated today. You can go through the Old Testament and time after time, I don't care where you go, you, whenever God, the, there was a time of apostasy, God raised up somebody, men, women, who it didn't matter who it was. But He found somebody who would listen to His voice and obey Him and give the trumpet a certain sound. And every single time, 
There's not one time in the Bible or the spirit of prophecy or in sacred history, not one time do you ever find where God's people as a whole ever accepted them. Not one time. And my friends, what makes it think you and I are any different? When God's people stand in a time of crisis, in a time when apostasy seems as though it just never ends, I tell you, brothers and sisters, do not be do not be shocked and afraid, or, or that that you that uh, that you're going to be rejected because you will be rejected. Jesus, you know what he said? He said, uh, "The servant is not above the master." If they've done it unto me, how much more shall they do it unto you? You know, Jesus also said one time, he said, if they do it when the tree is green, what will they do when it's dry? You know what that meant? You know what, he, you know what the symbolism, symbolism of that was? You know who that green tree represented? Jesus, because he is the life of all mankind. And then, you know, when a tree is green, it's full of life, isn't it? You know, right? But if you start you know, hacking down a tree or something and he starts to die, you can tell a dead tree just doesn't have any life in it. And Jesus simply meant this. He said, if they're going to do it while I'm around, the resurrection and the life, if they're going to do it to me while I'm here, what are they going to do when I'm gone? That's what Jesus meant. And I think of men like Noah. I can't imagine. All, I studied the spirit of prophecy. I studied my Bible. And I, and I think of that in, in, individual, that man, Noah, standing in the time of crisis. But you know, his was a global apostasy. <laughs> we got enough problems with one, two churches. You know what I mean? We got our churches, you know, they're having problems. But, but here, here Noah had to face the world. A global apostasy. But praise God for Noah. Noah obeyed the voice of the Lord. And you know, I'm going to say this. Because of Noah's faithfulness to God, we are alive today. Know that. They ridiculed him. They mocked him. They made fun of him. They thought he was a fanatic, a lunatic. Why, Noah, you're, you're a separationist. Why, Noah, you're spending all your means on, on that which is not going to profit. Why, you ought to be giving it over here to the church and let us spend it wisely. And had Noah given his means and all the rest to what they wanted to do, friends, I tell you, that ark would have never been built. And God is calling forth for our people today, my friends, to build not a wooden ark, but this time, friends, the ark of safety only found in Jesus and to get this church back on its feet again. But did the world accept Noah? Did they say, well, praise God, we've been waiting for you, Noah. Praise the Lord. Isn't that wonderful what we hear? Noah's just such a wonderful preacher. We've been waiting for your beautiful sermons, Noah. Thank you so much. We, can we, let's get my family into that ark. Did they, friends? Did they just wait and embrace that message? They, they did not, did they? They did not. You know, it's a shame. You sit there and read the Genesis account. It goes to show you how foolish and, and ignorant that generation was. You know, really, if you read the Spirit of Prophecy correctly and, and uh, study the Bible, you know, we have degenerated 
in, in, the, in the social and, and, and the political and economic and every kind of way, really mentally, spiritually, everything, we have gone down. And that generation was extremely, extremely intelligent, far superior to what we have today in the knowledge. You know, we, we think we're big with our science and all the rest. My, the children back then could be, were that smart. And here's a generation that had a, a, uh, brilliant minds, brilliant minds. And, but it goes to show you that it, just because you're a brilliant mind doesn't mean you're spiritually in tune with God. Because when the animals walked up first, that was a total rebuke to the entire world. That a dumb animal could hear the voice of God, but human beings couldn't. God forbid that we would have unclean animals walk before us. But there Noah, he gave that message. He warned the people. He told them, this is what's going to happen. But they refused to listen. They refused. And I think of God, uh, men, men uh, like, uh, um, as you go down through the line of Elijah. Oh, I love the study about Elijah. How relevant it is for us today. Oh, go back and study Prophets and Kings on those chapters in the life of Elijah. Oh, will your eyes just be opened even more so. How a man who at the time of crisis, and again, this time it was national apostasy. National apostasy. An entire nation had gone, uh, 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 fallen away from the Lord. And there God raised up a man like Elijah. Now, I, you know, it's rather interesting when you study and you go through uh, uh, the Old Testament, and as I say, uh, time and time again, you find that the majority, the majority, the overwhelming majority, never came from the, uh, uh, the religious leaders. You know that, don't you? Never came from the, quote, appointed uh, agencies that, that man had established. Always farmers, peasants, fishermen, herdsmen, you know, and the rest. These common walk of life, men and women, responding to the call of God. And then I think, you know, uh, Ezekiel. I like how Ezekiel, what happened to him. Turn with me there in Ezekiel. <clears throat> And look at me in verse uh, chapter 33. <clears throat> of course, now we know about Ezekiel. There were three prophets in the time of Ezekiel. You had Jeremiah back in uh, Palestine. You had Ezekiel there on the outside and surroundings of Babylon, you know, with the people of God in exile. And then, of course, you had Daniel in the palace there ministering uh, uh, in the um, city there of Babylon and so forth. So you had three prophets at this time. And again, uh, God's people had been taken into captivity, punishment. And so they led them away into that. But I want you to listen to what uh, God says about uh, Ezekiel and the people and their response to Ezekiel. Ezekiel 33 and I want you to look at verse um, well in verse 29 he talks about he, he knows all their abominations and so on in verse 30 it says this also thou son of man the children of thy people still are talking against thee by the walls and at the doors of the houses and speak one to another every one to his brother saying come I pray you and hear what the word what is the word that cometh forth from the Lord now here they are. Here's the people of God. God's people. There they are sitting. They're talking to one another. Hey, come on. Do you want to hear what the word of God is? And let's go listen to it, right? That's what they're saying. Now they're talking about Ezekiel. 
Now watch what it says. And they come unto thee as the people cometh, and they sit before thee as my people, and they hear thy words, but they will not, what? Do them. You see, they sit there and say, come on, let's all go listen to Ezekiel. He's really, I like him. He's a good preacher. They'll listen to his words. They like it. They like how what he did. Oh, that's really good. But they refuse to obey the words that Ezekiel gives. Goes on. He doesn't stop there. For with their mouth they do show much love, but their heart goeth after their covetousness. Now look, I love God. Thank you so wonderful. Isn't it a beautiful Sabbath day? Such a nice day. But their heart is far from God. Much lip service, no heart service. They love to hear, but they do not want to do. He goes on, he says this, And lo, thou art unto them as a very lovely song of one that hath a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument. For they hear thy words, but they do them not. not that interesting? Here the people of God looked at Ezekiel, you know how? Like someone who plays an instrument. Boy, we like how it sounds so good. It sounds so nice. And God said to Ezekiel, he said, listen, Ezekiel, you're like a, an instrument to the people of God. They love to hear you, but they refuse to follow in your foot in the, in the words that you give. He said, are, they speak so much, but their heart is far from me. The brother today, he was testifying how much he loved the church. But out of his own mouth, I could hear words of, 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 of condemnation and persecution of the saints. They love to talk about God and the rest. But, but with the true reality is their heart is not there. It's not there. And what do they do to Ezekiel? Do they embrace Ezekiel and say, Oh, praise God, here's Ezekiel. No, they did not embrace him. Just like they didn't embrace Noah. Or, or, or Elijah. Or Elisha. Or, or, or any other prophets. Isaiah. And, and, and Amos and Hosea. It doesn't matter. All of them were rejected. But there's one prophet. There's one prophet I'm going to share with you today. He stands out. He stands out alone, really, in one sense. He really does. He stands out alone. You know, there's, the, there's Isaiah known as the gospel prophet. If you want to go study about the gospel in the sense of, of uh, um, the prophecies there in the Bible, you go back to Isaiah because there he really detailed for us the beauty of, of Jesus and, and, and the plan of redemption. And then there are other prophets, but this prophet was known as the weeping prophet. He lived in this time of a crisis. It was unbelievable. But he kept crying and weeping. That's why he got the title, weeping prophet. And he wasn't weeping because he felt sorry for himself. He was weeping because he was seeing what was happening to God's people. And there's only one other prophet that matches him in parallel. The one prophet I'm talking about, if you already know, if you don't know, but his name is Jeremiah. We're going to talk about him in a moment. But there's another prophet that parallels with Jeremiah that has the same characteristics. And even historians today even call this prophet a, the weeping prophet too because there's such a striking similarity between the two. Jeremiah was the last prophet given to God's people there in Palestine just before you know the Babylonian captivity. He was the, he was the last one. 
And so here God, so, so uh, uh, Jeremiah's prophecies and the book of Jeremiah has a very strong application for us in the last days because in that it's so relevant in that he's the last one just before God's people went into captivity. But there was another prophet. Now, now by the way, Jeremiah was a prophet to Judah, not Israel. Okay, so we understand that because Israel had already been taken into captivity long before that. So he's talking about Judah. But there was a prophet to Israel. He was the last prophet. Do you know who that was? Before Israel went into captivity? Hosea. Hosea. And you find striking similarities between the two. I, I, I suggest you to do this. You go back. And I'm doing this, by the way. I'm studying the life of Hosea. I'm going through. Because I'm finding out that how striking a similarity it is between Hosea and, and Jeremiah. Hosea was the last prophet to Israel just before they were taken into captivity. Jeremiah was the last prophet just for Judah just before they were taken into captivity. And the messages are extremely strong and so relevant for us. So I challenge you to go back and study Hosea and, and, and Ezekiel or Jeremiah. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah. And let's take a look here at the prophet and what happened, what went on in the life of Jeremiah. I could give many, you know, we could go through many. I could pick out Hosea, there'd be no problem, and many other prophets. But this one really struck me most significantly because of what actually happened to him and, and what was going on in that time period. By the way, I want to suggest something to you. Uh, the message I'm going to give to you, uh, you'll find in the fourth volume of the testimonies called uh, Jeremiah Reproves Israel. There's a chapter there in Testimonies Volume 4 called Jeremiah Reproves Israel. Now I had put this, this sermon together before having read that chapter. And, um, and praise God, I'm thankful because in one sense that uh, the very text that I use is found right there. So uh, uh, it's going to be kind of strong, but uh, now that I know the servant of the Lord wrote the same thing, I'm not, I don't feel so bad. So it doesn't bother me to be honest with you. Jeremiah chapter 6, and I want you to look with me please, in verse 22. Jeremiah 6, 22. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, a people come from the north country. A great nation shall be raised from the sides of the north. They shall lay hold of a bow and spear. They are cruel and have no mercy. Their voice roareth like the sea. They ride upon the horses, set in array as men of war against thee, O daughter of Zion. Now here, God gives to Jeremiah the message of, of trouble coming. Really, it's a warning. It's a, it's a sound of warning. And he says, now look, tell the people there's trouble coming from where? What direction was it coming from? The north country, he was saying. Now, there, now, don't get confused if you look on a map of Palestine and think you're going to look right straight up and see Turkey and Russia. You know, because that's actually north if you go straight to Palestine. If you look on a map, he's not talking about Turkey, he's not talking about Russia, he's not talking about any of that. You've got to go back and you have to study Old Testament uh, um, history and so on and realize that whenever the direction upon which people attacked is where they normally were called, that that's where they came from. And, and this north country, he's talking about Babylon. Now Babylon sits east of, uh, you know, of, of Palestine. So you think, how in the world could they be called the, the north, the king of the north? Simply this. What was sitting between uh, Babylon and Palestine? You had just, that's all it was, desert. 
That's all it was, just desert. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was no fool, and he was, the way, historians tell us he was a rather brilliant general, really, military mind. And so he knew if he would have crossed his troops the, uh, across that desert, my friends, I tell you, by the time they hit Jerusalem, uh, Palestine, why they would have just conquered them. So what he did, simply did, was went up the fertile crescent, which came up, was all very, very plush with water and fruits and food and so on, and he just simply marched his troop up, and he came downward from the north in that direction and attacked um, Judah. And that's why it's called a nation from the north. And so he warns the people of God. And notice what he says to them. He says, they are cruel. They have no mercy, and their voice roareth like the lion. Listen, I tell you, here he describes them that when the Babylonians come, there's going to be no mercy upon God's people this time. No mercy at all. No mercy. What do you think the response was? Look with me in Jeremiah chapter 6, and please turn with me there in verse 16. Because notice what Jeremiah does. He gives the people of God the warning, then he asks them to do something. There he says, Thus saith the Lord, Stand ye in the ways, and see, and ask for the old paths. Where is the good way? And walk therein, and ye shall find rest for your souls. Now Jeremiah said, Listen, the only way you can escape this judgment, this, this time of, uh, of, of punishment, is you, you've got to come back to the old paths. That's the only way for safety. And listen, brothers and sisters, you and I need to be calling God's people back to the old paths now as never before. Now as never before. And, and, and I tell you, uh, it, it's a tragedy when you see them and, 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 and hear them um, just walk away. Just walk away. You think, dear God, how are you going to save them? What's going to happen? But I tell you, what was the response of Judah back then? What did they say? Look at this. He goes, but they said, we will not walk therein. They refused to listen to, to the words of Jeremiah. They refused to obey. They refused to follow in the only remedy, the only remedy that would save their souls. And I like this, you know, because he said, ask for the old past. You see, uh, People think we need to find these new things. And, you know, and I'm all for, you know, I'm not trying to say that God is not, couldn't give us new light and He's not going to. We know that light keeps increasing and unfolding. But often, my friends, we are so desperate for looking for new things when the problem is we need to come back to the old things. We need to go back because we've forgotten where we, are, where we really came from and where we have stood for so long. But they refused to listen. And the verse 17 says this, Also I set watchmen over you, saying, Hearken to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, We will not hearken. We won't listen to you. We, won't, we, don't, we don't hear your warnings. We will not obey. We will not obey. Time and time again, God tried to help the children of Israel through the prophet Jeremiah, raise them up to, to show the people of God the, their, their wrongs and their errors to come back. And in Jeremiah, if you turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 26, God gave the Jeremiah another message. Jeremiah chapter 26. It says, In the beginning, verse 1, In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, came this word from the Lord, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Stand in the court of the Lord's house, and speak unto all the cities of Judah, which come to worship in the Lord's house, all the words that I command thee, 
to speak unto them. Now, I want to stop right there before I go any further. Let me ask you something. Um, where was Jeremiah to speak this message? In the Lord's house. All right? You lock that upstairs. We'll come, we're going to come back to that in a moment. Look at me in verse 7. It says, So the priests and the prophets and all the people heard the word of Jeremiah speaking these words where? In the house of the Lord. All right, now, let me ask you this. Back in the Old Testament, they used to call it the house of the Lord or the temple, you know, and so on. But in the New Testament, you find the word like sanctuary and church. Then later on in Acts, you'll find the word church being used. But, uh, but the, in, in the Gospels and so on, you know, the synagogue was always used. And the temple, uh, you know, was used there too. I'm not trying to negate that, but, but you see the shifting of the words. But here's what I want to ask you something. In the Old Testament, when it talks about the house of the Lord or the temple of God and so on, and in the New Testament, it talks about synagogue. They are synonymous terms equal to that in the New Testament phrase where it's talking about the church. We realize that, right? I mean, we, we can understand that and see that. Okay? just want you to be aware of that. Now, let me ask you something, brethren. Do we have a message to give to this world? Do we? Of course we do. I saw... Another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to them that dwell in the earth, to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. Right? So we know that there is a message to be given to the world. Now I'm going to ask you another question. Is there a message to be given to the church? There is, isn't there? Jeremiah was told by God to speak all that he had told him to speak, where? In the church. And so that we come, we can very clearly see that there is a message to be given to the church. A message to be given to the church. And I like how it says here in verse 2, after he tells him to speak all the words that I command him, he goes on to say, diminish not a word. Oh, that's strong, isn't it? You see, you know what I like in that too? You know, when I tell somebody, if I were to say, now look, you got to get all this right. No, don't leave anything out. Not any of all this. You got to get everything in there, and just you know, tell them everything I said. You know, I liken that to being something really straight, don't you? Kind of liken it to the straight testimony. You see, that's what it was. That's what exactly what Jeremiah was giving them—a straight testimony. What a crooked dressed testimony. You know why it's called straight? You know why? You ever think about when you call it the Spirit of Prophecy? You read it over and over again in the Bible. Why is it called it straight? testimony. Because you see, not one word is diminished. Nothing is softening down the message. Nothing is in a way to, to be a, a bumper, you know, to kind of smooth it down. When it finally hits the, hits the receiver, it just kind of just falls off, just falls. No, no. It's to be straightforward in its manner and its presentation. Not beating around the bush, but giving it to its precise manner. And the way it should be. And he goes on, he says that, 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 that you're not to diminish one word. And he goes on to say this, If so be, they will hearken and turn every man from his evil way, that I may repent me of the evil which I purpose to do unto them because of the evil of their doings. And thou shalt say unto them, Thus saith the Lord, If ye will not hearken unto me to walk in my law which I have set before you, to hearken unto the words of my servants the prophets, whom I send unto you both rising up early and sending them, but ye have not hearkened. Now, you know, some people get critical on the testimony, straight testimony. They say, well, you're being judgmental. You're being critical. Why? You're, you're, you're too, uh, uh, you criticize too much the leaders and the church. Listen, 
If you would really carefully read verses 3 and 4 correctly and understand exactly what he's saying. In, in verse 2 he says he gives them the straight testimony into the church, right? What was the whole purpose for God raising up Jeremiah to speak in the church? Verses 3 and 4 tells you that they might repent and turn away from their sins. You see, the straight testimony, friends, is not a message uh, uh, that, that uh, is to... Um, Leave people just laying in their sins. Why the straight testimony is to save their souls. That's why he says, he says, speak all that I command you. Don't diminish one word. And if they'll hearken to the voice of the Lord, they'll, they'll I'll, I'll repent me of the evil that I'm about to bring upon them. So the straight testimony is a message to save people. But people will try to turn it around and make it appear as though uh, you're the one who keeps troubling Israel. You're the troublemaker. When in reality, it's not the one, it, the, the one who's given the straight choice is not troubling Israel. I like how Elijah said to Ahab, I'm not the one. Why, it's you and your household because you have forsaken what? The commandments of God. He goes on to say this, verse 6. Then will I make this house like Shiloh, and I will make this city a curse to all the nations of the earth. Now, when I first read that, you know, that didn't mean a thing to me. It had nothing, meant nothing to me. Okay, so God's going to make it like Shiloh. Okay. Now, why did God say that? Why did God say He's going to make city, Jerusalem, uh, like Shiloh? Well, you've got to go back to your Old Testament history. Anybody know anything about Shiloh? That's right. It was the first spot, wasn't it? The first spot that God chose to put the ark as his city, a city called Shiloh. Well, let's get a little history on Shiloh. God had placed that ark. You're right. It was his headquarters. That's exactly correct. That's where the ark was. And it was God's appointed city. But there was a high priest living at that time. His name was Eli. Now, Eli was a, a loving, lovable individual. He was so kind and gentle and understanding. I don't think, really, in all sincerity, you could have found a more gentle, kind person in all of Israel. But, Eli was, if there's such a thing, he was too kind. He was too gentle. Why, he was too forgiving. To the point where he was permitting sin in the church. And by the way, by his own sons and the leaders of the church. You see, Eli refused to reprove the sins of Israel. He refused to correct his own children. Eli was too kind. He was too gentle. So what happened? The children of Israel went into deep apostasy. Who were their neighbors? That's right. The Philistines. Why, they came over and they had a war there. And they devastated Shiloh. As a matter of fact, they ran it into the ground. While they took the ark. You remember them taking that ark? And, uh, and there they took that ark. But you know what? 
in them destroying the city and, all, and having this war, 30,000 of the children of Israel perished. 30,000 people. And you know who is held accountable for the city of Shiloh being totally ran into the ground, the ark taken, 30,000, 30,000 of the children of Israel who died, plus, plus, Eli's two sons who were consumed by the Lord and destroyed. That's right, that's right, Richard. It was Eli. One man is held accountable for all of that sin. All of it. And that's why I said, if you please, if you go back and read fourth testimonies, fourth volume of the testimonies, where it says, Jeremiah reprove Israel. She gives a vivid account. And that's why in Jeremiah he says, I'll make this place like Shiloh. And I tell you what, when he said that, that was such a strong rebuke to the children of Israel and the leadership. I tell you, they were furious. They were furious. And how do I know that? Read verse 8. Now it came to pass when Jeremiah had made an end of speaking all that the Lord had commanded them to speak and all the, and unto all the people, that the priests and the prophets and all the people took him saying, what? Thou shalt surely die. Now I want to say this. You know, when I read this, I mean, it literally shocked me. I couldn't believe it. Who is Jeremiah talking to? talking to the churches. And he also focuses in on, it's rather interesting because it mentions the leaders and it mentions all the people. Why, Jeremiah had to stand alone, didn't he? You know, see, sometimes I'll tell you what, brethren and sisters, it just may be, it just may be you have to stand alone. I don't know, you know, only God knows. But there may be a time you're going to have to stand all alone and all the people will be against you. It's nothing new. It's nothing new. But here they were what? They were willing to do what? Kill the prophet of God. You'll die. Today you'll die. And where was Jeremiah? In the court of the <laughs> he was in the church. Now listen, I think we've got to get, capture the essence of what is actually taking place here. Here God raises up Jeremiah in a time of apostasy. He says, Jeremiah, I've got a message for you to give. Tell the children of Israel, unless they repent, there's trouble coming from the Lord. Tell them the only way, a place of safety is to come back to the old past. They have no other place of rest. That's the only way. They refused. They refused to listen. God gave message after message. Finally, Jeremiah comes up. He stands up and says, listen. He walks into the church. He preaches the message, straight testimony message. He tells everybody there that unless you repent of your sins and confess and forsake, this place will be like Shiloh. Then every Jew that heard that knew exactly what he meant. And you know, it was a rebuke to the leaders and to the, uh, uh, the people of God. you know why? Because they knew it was Eli's fault that Shiloh was destroyed. And so actually Jeremiah was saying, you know what Jeremiah was saying? He was saying to the leaders, it's your fault that all this is taking place. That is a strong rebuke. And that's why he came around and he said, Jeremiah, you'll die today. And we're about to kill you right here. 
they were willing to kill the prophet in the house of God. This is not heathens. These aren't, these aren't pagans. You're talking about the church of God at that time. That they were willing to sacrifice the prophet of the Lord. Right there. You know, and I tell you, today when I was listening to some of the statements that the, someone, the, the people were making about the spirit of prophecy, I was, uh, I was shocked. I even told them, I said, I'm shocked today. I really thought, I said, I'm shocked at you for making such statements you're making on the spirit of prophecy. You know, friends, she's passed and she's resting in the grave. You know, we know that she's received, she'll receive the crown of life. We know that. She'll be there on resurrection morning. Now, whether you and I make it, that's another story. But you know, friends, let me say this. They're still killing the prophets today. They're still killing the prophet today. There's many ways to kill a prophet. You can disregard its words. You know that, don't you? You can just ban the words and throw them in the fire. Or, you know, you can downplay or you can ridicule and you can mock and make fun or whatever. And in that sense, in the ones that you are actually crucifying and killing the prophets, you really are. And the day I say this, when I, and I'm saddened, I'm sorry, but I have to say it, I'm going to speak frankly today, and I'm not preaching like I normally do because I just, I, I, I'm so really stirred up on this, but I'm telling you, today, Seventh-day Adventists are crucifying and stoning the prophets today. Seventh-day Adventists are stoning and killing Ellen G. White and the prophets of the Old Testament and New. But here they were willing to kill them. They were willing to say, you're going to die today. You'll, 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 not, uh, you'll not live. Because he goes on to say this. Look in verse 9. He says, Why hast thou prophesied in the name of the Lord, saying, This house shall be like Shiloh, and this city desolate without inhabitant? And all the people were gathered against Jeremiah in the house of the Lord. Three times it tells you where they are. In the house of the Lord. Three times. And there he says, he says they, they kept saying, Well, why? Why do you say such things as that? Why do you prophesy that, that, that this house would be like Shiloh? You see, they knew. You know, you know how they knew and understood what he meant by Shiloh? Because he said, and this place shall be without inhabitant. That's how you know that they understood what his words meant. Because they knew that Shiloh was left without an inhabitant. Shiloh was totally desolated to the ground. Now my question is, listen, how in the world could God's people reach this point? I mean, this is unbelievable. You know, we could see and, 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 and almost uh, in one sense say, thank God they took him out of the sanctuary to kill him. You know, I mean, what an abomination to do it right in God's house. I mean, at least you could have courtesy enough to take him out of the house of God. You know, I'm just, I mean, as God forbid that you should be stoned anywhere. But they didn't even have respect for, for the house of the Lord on this. And, uh, well, you think, well, maybe they could have taken them out there or whatever. But, but, but no, they were willing to do it right there. Right there. My question is, how in the world could they come to that point? Something had to lead them there. You just don't automatically decide, I'm going to kill a prophet today. Something has to lead you to make decisions and, and choices in your life. That's the way it is. You know, today you're planning for heaven or hell. You know that. We all know that. I think we realize that the choices we make today, the decisions we make, you know, how, what we read and see and do and so on, we're actually planning for future e events and future uh, uh, um, uh, 
uh, things to take place in our lives, really. And so when this actually came about, friends, this is just nothing more than the fruit of the seed that had been planted long ago. My question is, what was the seed that was planted that gave birth to this? Something had to do it. What was it? How could the people of God come to this point? I want you to turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 7. <clears throat> and I want to share with you a few things that I believe to be significant and uh, I believe to be absolutely crucial in this understanding. I'm going to share with you some th things that were going on there's in Jeremiah and, and what took place and what I believe to be actually what led them to the point where they were willing to kill the prophets. And remember, that was the same thing that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the lawyers said in the days of Jesus, wasn't it? Well, we love the prophets. We love them. And Jesus said, you're a witness against yourself. You're the children of them that killed and stoned the prophets. Well, here we see their forefathers. Jeremiah chapter 7. Look with me please here in verse 8. Jeremiah 7 verse 8 says this, Behold, ye trust in lying words that cannot profit. Will ye steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, and burn incense unto Baal, and walk after other gods whom ye know not, and come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name. Where are they standing? In the church. And say, We are delivered to do all these abominations. Now notice this. Here the children of God were coming. Lying, cheating, stealing, adultery, etc., etc. Walking into the church on the Sabbath morning and actually thinking that they had the, God, the, the, the right or the privilege to be delivered from all these abominations. Well, they actually believed that they could be set free from the condemnation of sin while living in sin. That's really what he's talking about. That they could come to the point where they say, "Why well, my sins won't bring me uh, any troubles. I'm, I, God loves me too much. He won't destroy me. Why, I can live in my sins and still have heaven too. You know, I love how the servant of the Lord says this in the Great Controversy. She's talking about um, spiritualism. On the chapter, it's called spiritualism. She's talked about modern spiritualism and how it, uh, how it has changed. You know, it's changed its, uh, its face, as it were. But it's still spiritualism. She's put on a new cover. And she goes on to describe uh, this modern spiritualism, how it now takes on the cloak of Christianity, now how it takes on the Bible. That, that, that spiritualism now quotes Scripture. It's a really powerful chapter there. But she goes on and she makes this statement about spiritualism, how, how into the church and so on, how that men would, from their Bibles, destroy the law of God. She talks about modern spiritualism and how it, uh, how it has changed. You know, It's changed its, uh, its face, as it were, but it's still spiritualism. She's put on a new cover. And she goes on to describe uh, this modern spiritualism, how it now takes on the cloak of Christianity, now how it takes on the Bible. That, that, that spiritualism now quotes Scripture. It's a really powerful chapter there. But she goes on and she makes this statement about spiritualism, how, how into the church and so on, how that men would, from their Bibles, destroy the law of God. And she says that's spiritualism. She goes on to say this, that they would begin to teach and, and uh, preached from, from, you know, to the people this kind of a message. She says, quote, Live as you please, heaven is your home. 
They actually teach that. That's spiritualism. She goes on to tell you that. She said that they could actually say, go around. Why, you can live as you please. Heaven is your home. You and I, you know that we cannot live as we please and think we're heaven bound. We can't do that. Can't live as you please. We must live to please Him. Not to please ourselves. But this was happening in their day. They were being caught in spiritualism. You see, friends, people that teach and advocate the fact that you can live in sin and still have life is teaching spiritualism. Because what are the wages of sin? Death. And to say that someone has life when they're dead is exactly what Satan told Adam, told Eve. Why well, you can partake of this fruit, you won't die. That's spiritualism. That's spiritualism. Attributing life in a state of death. And that's what they were being taught. They were into spiritualism. Now, I want you to know, friends, this is being taught today in the Seventh-day Adventist church. I think we're aware of that. Uh, for the sake of putting this on the tape, because uh, I hope it goes far and wide. This is what's being taught today in the Seventh-day Adventist church. That you can live as you please and still think you're heaven bound. Friends, that's spiritualism. Goes on in chapter uh, chapter 6. Notice, oh, go turn me to chapter 14, excuse me. Go to chapter 14. Chapter 14. Look at chapter 14. Please look with me here in chapter, uh, verse 13. Jeremiah 14, verse 13 says this, Then said I, O Lord God, behold the prophets say unto them. Now, he's, Jeremiah, he's, he's weeping. You can tell from the context of how it's written and how it's said here. He's weeping because here the false prophets, the prophets are going to the people of God. Now, they're giving them a message. Now, watch what the false prophets and teachers of the days of Jeremiah, what they were saying. Watch what they were saying to God's people at this time. Why, uh, ye shall not see sword, neither shall ye have famine. But I give you, what? Assured peace in this place. Notice what they were giving them? False assurance. False assurance. You know, it's interesting today, people, I, keep, I had people, in, 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 um, I can't remember where I was at, I don't know if it was in, uh, I would like, of course I can remember, but I remember someone coming to me and challenged me, coming up to me, said, um, you need to be preaching more on the assurance of Jesus. And I said, I agree, we need to hear about the assurance of Jesus, my friend, I, I agree wholeheartedly. And I got to talk to him a little bit more, a little bit more, and I came to realize what he wanted was simply this. He wasn't really interested in the, in the biblical uh, uh, definition of assurance in Jesus. What he wanted was assurance that God would save men of sins. See, that's the kind of theology they want to hear. Give me the assurance of Jesus that while I'm living in my sins, God still loves me and still going to take me to heaven. Listen, God does still love you, but I tell you what, He won't take you to heaven. You see, that's what they taught. Preach the assurance of Jesus. So you got a question, let me get a little bit more. Listen, friends, I'm all for preaching the assurance of Jesus, but the Bible way of preaching it. And that's simply this. I assure you, if you by God's grace follow in the footsteps of Jesus and claim His promise, I assure you, you'll have peace but only as you obey and follow the Lord. Other than that, there is no assurance from the Bible nor the spirit of prophecy. I assure you this. On the other hand, I assure you this. If you walk in sin and continue to, to, to rebel against God, I assure you, you'll go to hell. You've got assurance on both hands. You have the assurance. 
question is, what assurance do you really want? You know, we talk about assurance policies and so on, you know, if people, you know, we run into this sometimes, and, uh, you know, do you have assurance policy, do you have this, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, you know, today, let's say Adventists want to hear that assurance gospel, which is really a false gospel, what they want. But, you know, how greater, how much greater assurance can we get? You know, we trust in, in, in uh, insurance companies, you know, that they're going to take care of me. And, uh, you know, and the rest, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I'm not trying to say, you know, you shouldn't have car insurance and all the rest. I'm not, don't get me wrong. But, um, but isn't it interesting how we'll even pay them to take care of us? And we've got the greatest assurance of all from God's Word. The most powerful assurance policy right here. The Bible. And it's free. I don't have to pay anybody. You know? But, uh, but here is the second thing they were teaching. False assurance. False security. False concepts of assurance in Jesus. And I tell you before, as I mentioned before, listen, that's being taught today. No question about it. Now, notice something else here. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 6 and notice what else was being taught. Notice what else was being taught. Jeremiah chapter 6. Turn with me. Notice something else that were being taught in the days of, uh, of uh, Jeremiah. Jeremiah 6 verse 13. And from the least of them, even to the greatest of them, everyone is given to covetousness. From the prophet, even to the priest, everyone dealeth falsely. They have healed also the hurt of the daughter of my people, slightly saying, Peace, peace. When there is no peace. Why there they were preaching a peace and safety message. Why everything is fine, all is well in Zion. Uh, peace, peace. Everything's okay. They were preaching smooth messages. Messages that, uh, that uh, would uh, give the people a, a feeling of security. All is well. Everything is fine. When in reality, was it all fine? Was it all well? No. No, it wasn't. Trouble was just around the corner. And yet, here they were being taught, everything is okay. Why, our church our church uh, numbers are up and uh, we've got excellent things going and we're holding the, uh, um, you know, uh, um, why we're even having uh, harvest programs and, and reaping programs. Everything is going so well for the church. You can see we're all over the world. Believe me, peace, peace, all is well. When in reality, it wasn't well at all. But this is the third thing they were being taught. This was what was happening. And where did it lead them? In Jeremiah chapter 29 and 30, you can also check in 25, Jeremiah was given another message. And this was it. God said, that's enough. It was known as Babylonian captivity. The 70 years of captivity. And God there told the children of Israel, enough. Probation has ceased. I have, I have pled with you as much as I could plead with an individual or a church, uh, with a nation, and, and you refuse to listen. You refuse to obey. Therefore, you must reap the consequences. You must reap them. And, and sure enough, there they went. God talked about the, the captivity. He goes on. He actually says in Jeremiah 30, verses 3 through 7, and 5 through 7, really. But if you look there very clearly, you know what it says? He calls it what? Jacob's time of trouble. Jacob's time of trouble. But then you know what? He says, if you go down to chapter 30 all the way to verse 24, last verse, you know what he says? He says, you'll consider this in the last days. In the last days, you'll consider what he's just recorded there. Now listen. 
that tells me that what happened in the days of Jeremiah will take place again in the last days, just before Jesus returns. Let me ask you something. Are we living in a time of crisis, time of great apostasy? Absolutely. Are we hearing false messages of assurance where you can live in your sins and still have heaven? Are we hearing peace and safety messages? Absolutely. Today do we hear from the people of God uh, messages and things stated in um, condemning Ellen G. White and the Spirit of Prophecy? Yes, we do. Absolutely. Let me ask you something, brothers and sisters, and I want you to be honest. What should we be speaking today? What should we be saying today? What should be our message? Should be one of peace and safety. Everything is fine. All is well in Zion. You know that Paul said in in, in uh, First Thessalonians. I love this passage here. In First Thessalonians chapter five, he says this. First Thessalonians chapter five. He makes this statement. He says, but of the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord shall come unto the thief in the night. Not that Jesus comes secretly. And I hope we got a grip on this. It's not secretly, it's unexpectedly. For when they, talking about God's people now, God's people. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child. And they shall not escape. Listen, she... He says, but of the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. Now, what are the times and seasons that Paul's talking about here? That's right, because you go to chapter 4, he tells you what it is. He's simply saying, do you want to know the signs of the times? He's saying that when you start to hear in your churches peace and safety messages, I want you to know Christ is about to come. And you know, many people, you'll hear people say, well, that's not talking about the church that's not talking about the church. That's talking about the world. You ever heard somebody say that to you? Well, I don't. I know now. I know some of you are very staunch believers in the spirit of prophecy. I hope everyone is here. I want to challenge you to go into the spirit of prophecy and cross-reference there, First Thessalonians five, verse three and four, and find out what Ellen White says. You know what she applies it to? Ministers in the Seventh Day Adventist Church. But then again, as some people think, you know, she... What, sorry, what part of the Testament is that? Well, no, you have to go, you can look it up in the index. You have to go in the index, oh, scriptural index. Just look in the scriptural index. And I'm telling you, she's in there, she's got statements. She's talking about the ministers in the Adventist church preaching peace and safety messages. Okay? Now, here's how I feel about it. I'm going to stress it again because I'm, I'm really I, I'm disappointed in... in, in uh, those people there, I was really disappointed in their statements on the spirit of prophecy. Listen. I don't care if she said that I had to climb on a ceiling six times a year. You know, I believe that to be inspired. That's the way I look at the spirit of prophecy. I look at the spirit of prophecy that it comes from God's Holy Spirit and that's the end of it for me. I don't have to sit there and I'm not about to say, well, now she doesn't fit fit modern age and you know, that's back then. We've educated ourselves now. We're more intelligent. We understand more things. Listen, I think more, really, my friends, in the last 100, 
time, 50 years or so, that uh, since the Spirit of Prophecy has been around or whatever, I think we've gotten more dumb. Not more intelligent. The mere fact that we're going deeper into apostasy tells me we're more dumb. But I tell you, friends, my friends, I tell you, it's here. We've come to that point. And today we hear peace and safety, but I want to tell you today, I'm pleading with you. Listen, hold on, stay strong. Don't give up. Keep things moving. But whatever you do, by God's grace, you preach the truth. And don't you diminish one word. Don't you stop preaching. I don't care who opposes you. I don't care if he's the general conference president. Don't you stop. You must stand for God. I tell you, my friends, they've done it to Noah. They did it to Ezekiel. They did it to Elijah, Elisha. They did it to Isaiah. They did it to Jeremiah. They did it to Amos and, o and Obadiah and Jonah and Micah. And you go right down the list. They did it to the 12 disciples. They did it to our blessed Lord. They did it to many of your countrymen. Ridley, Cranmer, Tyndale, Wycliffe. And the list goes on and on and on. Do you know, my friends, your, your country has shed so much blood for religious freedom. Do you realize that? I hope you do. I hope you realize the heritage of your country. I'm sure you do. But you have shed more blood to keep yourselves free. God forbid that you should let your countrymen down that have died for you. Do you realize that? You owe your lives. I owe your, my life to them. Really, we do. In America, we do. Because of their dying for, for the truth and righteousness, America was born. You know that, don't you? And if we give up now, what would they think in their graves if they could just see what was going on? What you, I tell you, I bet you Ridley Cranmer, all of them, Luther and all would love to stand now today. I think they would take up the chance and say, praise God, let me get in there and preach. I, I can, you know, because I, I, you know, I love to read the Reformation, but I can imagine I'm seeing there, and I can just see that. Oh, I would have loved to heard those men preach, man. I mean, just to hear them grip the people there. Can you imagine preaching before five, ten thousand, twenty thousand people? No microphone, none of this, none of nothing. Just sitting there preaching in the open and the fields, and having people converted and convicted in godliness to the, such a point where persecution came. Listen, friends, that tells me we haven't gotten our act together right because persecution hasn't come. The mere fact that, the mere fact that we're living peace and ease and all is well in Zion tells me God doesn't have the people ready yet. He doesn't have it ready. No. He's waiting. He's waiting. The question is, do we want to be a part of it? Do we want to stand in that day? I hope and pray we do because I tell you, woe be to us if we don't cry out. Because if Jesus has to, He'll get the rocks to do it. Just like, you know, in the days of Noah, He got the animals had to walk in. What a rebuke. What a rebuke. I pray that we'll help our brothers and sisters in the churches. You know, like the brothers that, the sisters there that are, I was talking to today. And we don't need to we don't need to, it's not, a, it's, we shouldn't make fun of them. We shouldn't mock them and, you know, and condemn them and all the rest. I, it's, it's a time to weep. It's a time to weep to see this actually happening. It's a time to pray for them earnestly and plead with them and help them to come out. But that doesn't mean we become like Eli 
where we negate the message. I'm going to ask that we might kneel together in prayer. I'm going to ask that maybe two people will pray and then I'll close. Any two, I don't care who it is, it doesn't matter, just someone. And I want us to pray. Particularly, I want us to pray that pray for God's church. The leadership and God's people in the church. Because you know, here was an individual I was talking today and he's so blind. He is so... He doesn't know his Bible. He doesn't know the spirit of prophecy. All I did was, I, I, several times I challenged him, would you please show me that? And I shared with him the Bible and he couldn't... And it just goes to show me, he's like, he, he's just led the blind leading the blind. That's all I can say. That's all I can see in this man. That he's just blind and he's being led by the blind ministers. Just walking down the path. He, he, he doesn't even realize that he's walking down the path of death. He doesn't even realize it. We need to pray for those people. To, that God would somehow pull their eyes open to see really what's going on. But then we need to pray for the faithful few here that are trying to keep the banners high. That they'll keep it high and not let it down. And pray for the world movement for all of us. You know, in America there, we're trying to... Have, Keep things moving. And, and those in New Zealand and Australia and all over the world, there's the little companies that are holding tight. So as we kneel together, I'm going to close with prayer. And so if I could just have two volunteers, I don't care who it is, whoever feels pressed by the Lord to pray, to just offer the prayer. Dear Father, I want to lift up again the many requests and prayers that have been offered today. And I pray, dear Lord, that you might help us to be the people that you would want us to be in this hour of crisis. Lord, help us to be ever so aware of our responsibility to our fellow man. Help us to also come to the realization that time is ever so short, shorter than we can even imagine. I pray, dear Lord, that we know that there are 7,000 and have not bowed the knee I pray, dear God, that you might raise them up in this crisis hour now. Those in leadership positions and all around the world, I pray, Father, they'll take a stand. And I pray also, Lord, that you might remember the general conference session. That the holy angels there will keep back the winds of apostasy and strife and confusion and Lord God, that your heavenly spirit might descend in such power that we can turn back the hands of apostasy and restore this church to the beauty that it's lost and once had. Father, we pray also for the many precious souls that are standing for truth around the world. 
Sometimes it thinks, Father, we feel that we're all alone. We stand and we have no one else to help us. But Lord, I pray that if there are those that are standing all alone, that you'll bring someone there to encourage them and, and strengthen them to realize they're not. That there are others all over. They may be few, but they are there. And God, I pray that you would please help us to learn to be Christ-like, to have the sweet spirit of Jesus, that when we preach or give Bible studies or witness in any form, that we always might keep Jesus in the forefront and lift Him up as the only hope. Help us, Lord, to be balanced Christians, to be loving and lovable, but also to preach the straight testimony. Dear Lord, thank you for this opportunity that we have as brothers and sisters to come together, the freedom that we have to worship you. We pray that you would draw close to us this Sabbath. And I want to pray for those saints that I talked today, dear God, they need help. They are so blind. They are so confused over the issues, Lord. They don't even understand. I pray, Lord, you'll set them free from the deceptions of Satan. Help them, dear Lord. Thank you once again, dear Father, for your word. I'm so thankful you've given it to us. We might take time to treasure it in our hearts and to learn the ways of the Lord. Bless us now. And Lord, thank you so much again for your son Jesus. Because it's in his name we pray. And for his sake. Amen. Amen.